Hey everybody, this is Jeannie Faulkner and you are listening to Common Sense Pregnancy, Parenting and Politics, the podcast where we talk about all of that and about anything else we want. Sorry I missed sending out an episode last week. I got sick, went to bed one night feeling fine and woke up the next morning feeling like crap. It happens, right? All better now and ready to send out a great conversation this week. Um, that I had with an OBGYN who did something both common and truly amazing. And you'll hear more about that in a bit. I'm going to keep my ramble shorter than usual this week because my chat with the good doctor is a real nice long one. But I do want to say this. You folks are all really special to me. And I really appreciate your trust and confidence and community. It's hard for me to believe that we've been chatting for just about four years now. And there is still so much to talk about. You know, I think I've said it before, but pregnancy is the most universal of experiences. And it's the one thing that absolutely unifies every single one of us. No matter whether we have babies or not, every life on earth started with a pregnancy. We were all born to a mother, every single one of us. And while every pregnancy and birth is part of this universal time-honored experience, they're each one different from the rest because every mother-baby combination is unique. So that's what we talk about, right? Now, um, I'm not going to say too much about politics this week, except hang in there, folks. It's been a wild couple of weeks, a wild few years in Washington, and every day we seem to learn more about corruption, collusion, obstruction, and more. But we're also seeing signs of bravery, heroism, and patriotism as more and more members of Congress and Americans like ourselves stand up and shout their truth and demand a return to democracy, humanity, and the values our country has always stood for. If you get a chance, go look at some of the feuded footage from um, Elijah Cummings' funeral today, and you'll hear testament after testament to what an outstanding human being Elijah Cummings was. And you'll hear from some of our greatest leaders in the country about, you know, what American values stand for. And you know what I think? It's easy to be hopeless and cynical And it's easy to be angry about what's going on in America these days. But you know what I really think is that actually we're bringing decency back. We're bringing back kindness and compassion and empathy. We're bringing back charity and generosity and honesty and forgiveness. That's what most people stand for. Those are our American values. And I truly believe that these values will prevail. And in backlash to the last few years that have just been, you know, really representative of the worst that people offer, I I think that we're going to see these values um, come back full force stronger than ever. So all I want to do for this week's political push is I want to mention that on October 31st, Halloween, the Pregnancy Discrimination Act turns 41. Unfortunately, despite the Pregnancy Discrimination Act's protections, pregnancy discrimination is alive and well to this very day. But to mark the anniversary and how highlight how far we have to go, The National Partnership for Women and Families are encouraging people to post throwback pictures of their mothers or themselves or other relatives during or after pregnancy, and they're using the hashtag, hashtag TBT, and hoping you'll join them in showing how much has not changed in the past 41 years. So that's all I'm going to ramble about this week. We're going to take a real quick break and get right into it with this week's guest. Okay, we're back. And I'm super excited to talk with this week's guest because she's covering a topic we've never really covered before, the power of a good old-fashioned apology. 
Dr. Kate McQueen is a board-certified obstetrician-gynecologist at the University of Washington Medical Center in Seattle. She's working on a memoir about practicing medicine in the United States and abroad in Tanzania, and she just had an article published last week in the Huffington Post about how apologizing to a patient changed the way she practices. Let's get Dr. McLean on the line. Hi, Kate. It's Jeannie. How are you? Good. Thanks, Jeannie. I'm really happy to be here with you. I'm happy to have you. You're up in Seattle, aren't you? That's right. Pretty close to you in Oregon, correct? Yes. it's You're our sister in the land of drizzle and gray. <laughs> so true. <laughs> Although this native Seattleite over here doesn't mind it too much. Well, I'm a native California girl, so I whine about it all the time. <laughs> uh, you can whine to me any day. Oh, thanks. Sorry about it, listeners. It's fall in the Pacific Northwest, and it's gloomy, and that's just how it goes. Kate, let me ask you the big bad question. Who are you, and what do you do? I'm a general obstetrician gynecologist with UW Medicine in Seattle, and so I work with a group of nine other women providing pregnancy and gynecologic surgery and annual exams and that sort of thing to women throughout their lives. Awesome. So you do both obstetrics and gynecology. That's right. All right. I love that. That's a comprehensive gig. You've got a lot of different things going on. What I really like is that I get to see women at every stage of their lives. Um, I see them when they're pregnant, see them when they're trying to get pregnant, see them postpartum, and I see them when they're going through menopause or if they need a hysterectomy. I really like getting to develop relationships with my patients, and that takes time. You get to see them when they're young, young women and just starting out on their their sexual lives? That's true. I also see teenagers uh, for painful periods or heavy periods or for birth control, um, and I enjoy taking t- taking care of teenagers as well. You have a good gig. What do you do when you're not doctoring? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I'm, I guess, a relatively serious distance runner. Um, I've run a marathon this year and a half marathon, training for another race coming up. Um, I also like to take photos of wildlife. So my family and I like to uh, sort of tailor our traveling and our vacations around getting to see the beautiful outdoors here in the Pacific Northwest and possibly some wildlife as well. So when you're doing distance running, is a full marathon the furthest that you run? Um, I have not done any races that were longer than 26.2 miles. I think I've technically been on a trail run with some friends that was longer than that, um, but nothing official. I'm I'm not sure I want to cross over the line into ultras just yet. Um, I think my family would be sad if they never saw me on weekends. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I cannot imagine it, but I know people who do it and it is their lifeblood. So when you run, and then we're going to get into the gist of this interview, but it's just something I'm interested in. Do you run for a cause? Do you have like somebody that you fundraise for or do you just run it? That depends on the race. I've certainly have done um, specific fundraisers for different races. And then I've also picked races where I just really wanted to see the course, like the Sunflower Relay and Winthrop, for example, mm. it's really scenic. And so some races I'm doing for charity and some I'm doing, I guess, for a peace of mind, um, getting to see the most beautiful places in the world. Got any charities you want to give a shout out to right now? Well, I definitely love the Lake Tanganyika Floating Health Clinic. Um, I've consulted for them for a long time, uh, primarily doing women's health, uh, including contraception, obstetrical fistula repair, um, emergency obstetrical care in Western Tanzania and the Eastern Congo. So the LTFHC for short is one of my favorite charities. Love it. Yeah. So how did you decide that being an OBGYN was your calling. How how did that happen? In med school, I really liked the unique combination of getting to work with my hands. So being a surgical subspecialist, but also having the chance to 
get to know people over a longer period of time. Um, for example, it's less common for a general surgeon to keep seeing the same patient back again after their surgery has been completed and they've recovered. Um, but as we were talking about earlier, I get to see women throughout their whole lives. And I like talking to people and developing that relationship just as much as I like to work with my hands. It's, it's a really great combo. It's kind of the opposite of the stereotypical surgeon, you know, where a surgeon is going to see you at your pre-op appointment, in the hospital, at your post-op appointment, done. And most of the time that you spend with that surgeon, you're going to be out. You're going to be unconscious. <laughs> it's very true. And I think so. I think some physicians prefer their patients unconscious. <laughs> I know. And they're excellent surgeons. <laughs> but I actually really like talking to people and that is truly my favorite part of the job. Um, and I also, you know, if you go and get your gallbladder taken out, it's that's not nearly as fun as, say, giving birth and then getting to take your baby home with you afterwards. I mean, it's this really happy occasion most of the time. Yeah. Um, and it's really fun to be a part of that. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody asked me recently, you know, what my favorite part of the gig was. And it was, I told them it's the warm, fuzzy births. It's, <laughs> that's what it is. It's the warm, fuzzy births. You yes. miss it. That mm -hmm. and starting IVs. I really like that part. <laughs> <laughs> so you like working with your hands too. I do. I do. Yeah, I know. But if anybody tries to start an IV on me, ooh, they are not my friend. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's probably tough if you know that you could do it better. So much better. <laughs> <laughs> Those of us in healthcare make the worst patients, I think. We're the worst. We mm. suck. Yes, we do. I don't listen to my doctor's advice at all. It's really no. terrible. And we don't have any control issues. It's not about that. <laughs> <laughs> True. It's not that I think I know better. <laughs> no, no, no. It's them. It's them. It always is. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's talk about the article you wrote for the Huffington Post last week that just really caught my eye and made me want to get a hold of you and get you on the pod. And it was titled, My Patient Almost Died from a Mistake I Made. I Apologized and It Changed My Life. Whew, girl. <laughs> I know that really puts, puts it in perspective, doesn't it? Well, is that your headline or did Huffington Post do that for you? Uh, I had, they didn't ask me for a title and <laughs> I only saw it for the first time when it came out. Um, but it's I, a good one. I, I think it is attention grabbing, certainly. Yeah, yeah, it really is. And it kind of cuts to the heart of the matter. But I'm wondering if you could describe it a little bit for listeners who haven't read it yet. The article talks uh, about a, a time during my training fellowship um, when I didn't realize because I hadn't looked carefully enough at a patient's CT scan that her liver was enlarged. And so the first step in the surgery involved putting a needle into her abdomen. And it turned out that we put that needle straight into her liver. Um, air went through the needle um, and flowed through the bloodstream into her right heart, and her heart stopped beating. Uh, luckily, we did CPR, and that cleared the bubble from her heart. And so she was only in arrest for a couple of minutes. Um, and she recovered and had no lasting effects as far as I know. Uh, but it was the first time where I really felt like if I had done things differently, if I had been more careful, then the patient would have been safer. And that's a, it's a really, I think, grown up lesson to learn when you're still in training. Yeah. I think when we're young, we think that we're that maybe if we study hard enough, if we try hard enough, um, if we do everything we're supposed to do, that will be infallible. And of course, that's a that's a safer thing to think. Um, when really the adult truth is that we're all human. None of us can control everything, and we are going to make mistakes. And it's a scary thing to contemplate when you're holding someone's life in your hand or even in obstetrics when potentially you're holding two lives in your hand at one time. It's really scary to wrap your mind around that. And it actually took me a, a long time to come to peace about that. Um, after this happened with this patient and after I apologized to her for my mistake, it still didn't sit well with me. It took even longer to come to the point where I realized 
we can't be better than being human. And really that apology turned that humanness actually into an, an advantage more than anything else. In what um, way? What do you mean? Well, you were saying that many of your uh, listeners feel like they don't get to have an honest conversation with their physicians, like not right. a really personal conversation. Right. And I think ideally that wouldn't be the case. And really good communication is based on having an honest interaction with somebody. And so I, I really actually think it's better if I tell patients that I'm sorry, if there's a mistake that I've made, that I let them see that I'm sad about what happened, that I care about them. That I think makes for a stronger doctor-patient relationship than pretending that mistakes don't actually happen because that's not true. So why did you write about it now? I mean, you haven't been a, a training fellow in a good long time. How, what, why now? <laughs> I, I think age brings perspective, perhaps, mm-hmm. and, and maybe a little bit more courage. I mean, uh, so I actually published a pretty professionally controversial op-ed in the New York Times this summer. And after doing that, I didn't expect to feel nervous when the HuffPost piece came out. But I really did. Um, I, it felt like opening myself up in a much more personal way than just giving a medical opinion about something. Um, I felt vulnerable. And so I think it took me a while to get to that place where I was okay with that. Yeah. Yeah. How have you been, have you been reading the comments? I've read some of them. <laughs> are they mostly supportive or are I, they mostly trolls? Um, no, what I've read has been mostly supportive and all the feedback I've gotten has been uniformly positive and that's been really lovely. Um, I, that's I a think- good place to stop reading comments. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> don't go, you don't need any other feedback. That's good. <laughs> um, and, you know, and actually I, I didn't really end up with like Twitter trolls like I did after the op-ed. Um, and so it was interesting that way. Even though I felt more vulnerable, people really didn't attack me in the same way. Um, I think it just got, it took me a while to get to the place where I was okay being vulnerable like that. I just had to get a little bit older. Are you a Brene Brown fan? Yeah. Yeah, me too. Did you find, I mean, for listeners who don't know who she is, she writes about shame and vulnerability Mm -hmm. and the um, impact of just sort of laying your heart open and how it's generally um, a positive thing. Positive stuff comes from it. That's true. And I, I think I'm, I'm really learning that and trying to put that into practice. Um, I've always wanted to write a memoir about practicing medicine here in the United States and then also practicing medicine in Tanzania and the Congo. And I'm finally feeling brave enough to give that a real go. Okay. You and I are going to talk about that after the podcast because I have some deep thoughts on that. <laughs> Save that for another conversation. Okay. But I, what I did want to you know, say is you're kind of um, a pioneer here because you know, having worked as a nurse for oh so many years, um, having a doctor say she's sorry to a patient or a nurse or another provider, it's pretty rare. You know, it, it kind of represents a, a, a serious change in culture from you know, the image of the all-knowing, omniscient, all-seeing doctor that, you know, we're kind of, we kind of grow up expecting. And also, I think a lot of healthcare providers, you're trained that way so that, you know, for litigious reasons. And if you're, you make a mistake, you're trained to cover your ass and consult with the attorneys. Am I right? Yes. Yes. I I had never seen one of my attending physicians or one of my bosses apologize to a patient before. Now, perhaps that happened behind closed doors when the rest of the team wasn't around. And if that's the case, I'm sad about that. I wish they'd felt comfortable sharing that with us. But I think we are trained to think that if we study hard enough, 
if we stay in the hospital long hours, that somehow it might actually be possible to be perfect where this sort of thing doesn't happen to you. And that's so wrong. Um, There's no way for any of us to be perfect. I mean, certainly I wish from a medical perspective I could be. Um, I wish that it was impossible for me to ever make a mistake or ever potentially hurt a patient. Um, But I know now that that's not true. I've experienced it firsthand. And I, I wish that medical students and residents were trained better to deal with that, to, mm. to know that it, w- it, it will happen to you. Mm-hmm. It will. If you practice medicine long enough, it mm-hmm. happens to everybody. And so here, I wish, I wish we were given the tools to use to handle that um, instead of having to sort of blindly feel one's way forward and trying to figure it out by oneself. <laughs> Always yeah. be better to, taught by some, to be taught by somebody who's trod that path in front of you and learned from it. Yeah, yeah. And if it did, you know, if that apology didn't happen behind closed doors, it would be modeled for other students to, mm-hmm. you know, there's a place for apology and humility in all situations, it seems like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how were you trained to handle errors? What did they teach you to do? Well, I think what little training I did have focused a lot on systems correction. Mm-hmm. So if there was a mistake, we would talk about it in morbidity and mortality conference, which as residents was always a really nerve wracking experience. You'd have to stand up in front of a room of 40 people, usually you're sweating profusely under your scrubs, and you'd describe this clinical situation that you were involved in and defend your own actions while attendings peppered questions at you and you tried not to cry. <laughs> yeah. Nurses have a similar situation and it's called visiting the suits. <laughs> Something went wrong with your patient. Your name is on that chart and uh-huh. you have to go visit the the damage control attorneys. <laughs> right. And so then you would talk about, well, if we did things a bit more differently before we began this surgery, maybe things would be improved next time. And I think a lot of good things have come out of conversations like this. Like now we have these pre-surgical safety checklists and things that we always abide by. And that has reduced medical error. So I think that our training always concentrated on that concrete problem solving. Like how can we plug the holes in the Swiss cheese, so to speak, Mm -hmm. um, so these things don't happen. And that has a place And obviously, we need to do that to generally improve care. But the counterpoint to that in terms of how do you handle your relationship with your patient? What is best for them emotionally? What is best for you emotionally? How can both of you get through this? Because honestly, it can be traumatizing for everybody involved. Uh, That piece was not addressed. Now, the residency program that I was in started to do some error disclosure training I believe right shortly after I graduated. Um, So I was never directly involved in that, but I have heard from those who were that it was pretty successful. I don't know if they're still doing it, Uh, but it involved mock patients and a mock clinical scenario where the residents would have to practice telling a patient that an error had occurred. So I think that's also a step in the right direction. So for listeners who haven't read the article yet, what happened when you apologized to your patient? Well, I was. I was nervous as heck um, when I did it. It felt like I was breaking some kind of unwritten rule. Yeah, you uh, were. Doing something really tra- transgressive. Sneaky. <laughs> I know. Like I was sneaking around behind my attendings back and I'd done this thing without them knowing about it. Um, so I was terrified. Um, did your attending know you were going to do it? No. And I don't actually know that that attending ever found out unless they perhaps read the article. <laughs> um, so they they were never a part of all of this. This was about my relationship with my patient mm-hmm. um, more than anything else. Uh, but I was terrified of potential repercussions. I just really felt like I had to do the thing that I knew was right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so <laughs> this patient was much wiser 
um, than I was. I hope to one day reach her levels of wisdom. Um, and she, for her, she was like, oh, honey, it's not a big deal. <laughs> she was like, I can see that you care a lot. It matters to me that you care about me. I, she's like, I'm a wise person. I know that there's nothing certain in this life. I know that doctors aren't perfect. I never had that expectation. <laughs> um, yeah. And so I, I it really, it was... Uh, it was a softball. You know, the first one I got to hit was a softball because she was so amazing and so kind. Um, you got the right person. <laughs> I mean, although I bet that, you know, in reading the article and the way that you handled it, I bet virtually anybody would take it the same way. You know, even if they weren't old and wise, they would really resonate with the compassion and the humility. And and it, those are both signs that you really care, and that you're not you know above it all and better than them and all of that. I I haven't had an apology go really poorly. Um, that is not something that's happened to me. Um, I I've never had quite the same sort of situation crop up since then. Um, but I've certainly been involved in cases where things did not go ideally for a variety of reasons. Um, but that's not to say that. I've never failed in a conversation with a patient. I definitely have. I've had people angry with me, and rightly so. And then other times where you think, wow, I really tried my hardest here um, to be compassionate, to show my feelings, and even then people are still angry. So it, it, it is still a vulnerable thing to do. Yeah. Um, Sometimes that anger really has nothing to do with you. You know, their their anger is more about fear or you know, not having control. Right? It's a really it's a really scary thing to not have control. I have yeah. this conversation with my my pregnant patients a lot, actually. Um, at our practice, we see a lot of patients who have a very specific idea about how they want their birth experience to go. Mm -hmm. uh, people who maybe have written a very thorough birth plan, who might be working with a doula, who perhaps have taken a hypnobirthing class and are extremely well informed. Um, and I enjoy working with my patients. Um, but we also have this discussion about how no matter how many classes they go to or how well informed they are or how healthy they eat during their pregnancy or how much exercise they get – even if they do everything perfectly, and even if we as their care team does everything perfectly, none of us know exactly how this is going to go. Yeah. Um, and none of us have 100% control over how any of this goes. And we talk about how this is kind of the first lesson in what it's also like to be a parent. So um, true. So um, true. And how I tell them this is actually the gentle version. This yeah. is like the universe dipping your toe in with this birth experience. Yeah. Because yeah. it's even harder when, you know, you well, I'll tell my recent example from my own life, send your baby off to college where I mean, these days it's a it's a difficult thing to be a woman in college these days. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, that not being able to protect your child from the things that could happen to her, I think, is is one of the more painful things uh, that we don't have that control. So I do have these conversations with patients about how, even though we might like to control things and people definitely want to have a certain birth experience, we just never know what's going to happen. And it's some people amazing. really don't like hearing that. <laughs> I know. it. It's amazing how certain our opinions are about parenting before you have kids. You know, like oh, yeah. I, when I have a kid, I am never going to let them watch TV. Oh, honey. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Just wait till you need to cart them on a plane for the first time, right? <laughs> yes. yes. Or wait till you need to have a 20-minute discussion in private with your husband. You're going to put them in front of Mary Poppins. You're going to do it. You know? <laughs> or my child is never going to eat processed foods. Uh-huh. <laughs> yes, they are. <laughs> they are. And that doesn't make any of us a bad parent either. Mm -hmm. No, it's just, it's our reality check. You don't know what you're getting into. And it's real different than what you think it is. Uh, real yes. different. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, well, I, but that's a painful experience for people to confront. It is. <laughs> painful experience that starts in labor. <laughs> yes, it does. And we're right, we're, we're, I'm right there with my patients. So it's not always easy. <laughs> 
Well, I'd like to go back and talk a little bit about trauma. You, you mentioned that, and I wanted to ask you about it. The trauma that doctors and healthcare providers experience when a patient suffers a poor outcome or a catastrophic event on our watch. And, you know, it could be a fetal demise or a patient who dies or a crisis like the one you described, or, you know, it could be anything. But it really has a huge impact on those of us that take care of patients. Because even though we might be stoic and not cry in the room, we are going to go to the staff bathroom immediately afterwards and cry our eyes out. We're gonna, it's gonna happen. Yes. And we're yeah. gonna take it home with us the next yeah. morning or the next day. And um, for doctors, that can really undermine your self-confidence and your esteem and all of that. But we don't talk a lot about that because doctors are perfect. <laughs> I, I wish we would, we would talk about it more. And this is a delicate thing to discuss because um, I think many of us feel like we don't have a right to be traumatized by that because it's the patient who suffered this terrible experience, this terrible loss, this terrible outcome. It, it, we, it, we feel as though there shouldn't be room for us to be traumatized, I think. But you're um, experiencing it too. Yes. And, and that is innately the, true. Yeah. You're experiencing the trauma too. And although nothing is controllable, you're the one in charge. Yeah. It is, it's a difficult thing to have the buck stop with you. It feels like an immense amount of pressure, um, especially mm-hmm. in obstetrics where um, many times your patients are perfectly healthy mm-hmm. and nobody expects anything bad to happen. Um, I think it's a little bit of a distinction from, you know, perhaps a more elderly patient having a surgery for a really complex medical problem that had already made them in poor health. I think people Mm -hmm. put these in different categories. Nobody expects in obstetrical care for things to go badly. Um, And so that's, it can be a very um, challenging profession for people to last many years. And I think for that reason, that there doesn't, there, there is no, there's no room for error. Um, uh, and there's so it, much pressure on doctors, not just, you know, obviously the number one priority is don't mess up your patients, but then the other priority is don't mess up your malpractice insurance. And it's just, <laughs> you guys are getting the pressure from all kinds of areas. And you never know when it's going to happen. Right. You might be asleep in your call room at two o'clock in the morning with nobody in labor and then wake up to find the charge nurse physically hauling you out of bed, carrying yep. you into the OR, yep. shoving a gown on you and a scalpel into your hand and saying, this patient just came in through the ER, she's bleeding everywhere, her baby is crashing, and realizing you have like 90 seconds to solve this problem. Yeah. Um, Sleep-based, <laughs> you need to make a cut. You're like, I don't have time to introduce myself to this patient. I don't have time to look at her chart. I just have to (laughs) – Yeah. These are high-pressure situations, I think, for anyone. Um, And it took me a long time. I I really, in my early career, found that pressure to be almost too intense to bear. Mm -hmm. Um, I I did suffer a lot with that. And even if a clinical scenario went really well – so even if that scalpel got put into my hand and I did that C-section as fast as humanly possible, I got that baby out, I stopped all the bleeding, I saved two lives, even if that happened, I wasn't the person who then patted myself on the back and took myself out for beer. Um, I would go home and obsess over every step and think, yeah. if I'd done this differently, if I'd done this better, could it, would she maybe not have needed that transfusion? I would obsess over every single detail. And it took me time to get to a place where I, I do still feel that trauma when things go wrong. Um, but it's more like I think to myself, did you do the best that you could? Did you do what probably any well-trained OBGYN would have done in these circumstances? And if you can answer yes to both of those questions, I mean, it's like you have to cut yourself a break. Otherwise, you'll go insane. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it just took me a while to to get there. And it's not perfect. I still ruminate about outcomes really frequently, um, but it's better than it was. Yeah. Um, and that's, do, that's you, all do you have any, do you have any, you know, like 
personal care tips or tricks that you use that help you deal with this kind of stress? <laughs> I know oh, you run. You're I a runner. I suggest bathing your brain in endorphins on a really regular basis. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> that and chocolate. <laughs> Always. Yes. Help chocolate. a lot. Here's the I like, dementors. <laughs> I like to end my long runs. I like to do them one way and end them either at a donut shop or a bakery. Ooh. Um, you know, hence the the cinnamon roll this morning that I had for breakfast. <laughs> but then how do you get home? <laughs> Uber. It's all about the Uber or the Lyft. Oh, you're practical. <laughs> or if my husband can come get me, he'll come get me. But a lot of times he's busier working. And so, I mean, I've even gotten my friends to do this. So my running buddies now, this is what we do together. Um, we'll take one-way runs that end where you can eat chocolate and or carbohydrates. <laughs> it's perfect. <laughs> I think that that is an excellent coping skill. <laughs> <laughs> it's working for me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. So the second part of the title of that article is, um, I apologized and it changed my life. Did it? Did it change your life? Or did I, the Huffington Post say that it changed your life? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think I think that it did because – once I came to the realization that the world was not going to end when I admitted a mistake, uh, that was a lasting lesson. You know, once I saw that that would actually bring me closer with the other person involved, not drive a wedge between us. And research does show that physicians overestimate the risk of getting sued. And I think people also overestimate the risk of an apology in an interpersonal relationship, so something outside of their professional life. Um, you know, it's like I talk in the article a little bit about what it's been like with my stepdaughter and, and getting to know her and trying to figure out how to become a parent to this child I've only just met and who has moved from a foreign country into my house and is getting used to an entirely new world. Um, realizing I had to be a parent for her and I had to figure that out. But if she saw that I was just doing my best and that I knew I was making mistakes. I was just trying my hardest to figure it out. I, I think that that actually brought us closer as opposed to me just saying, well, you know, because I said so. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, okay. That doesn't that doesn't work. It works so much with less them. than we think it should. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think she wants to know really where I'm coming from. And she wants to know that I'm trying. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't, I, you know, me admitting mistakes with her has actually been the better way to go. It's, it's been a really big life lesson that way. Is it hard? Um, Is it hard to do? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's not as terrifying with her as it was when I was in the hospital that first time apologizing to that patient, not knowing what was going to happen. Because now I've apologized lots of times since then. And overall, those have been uh, reinforcing experiences that it's the right thing to do. But I don't think it's ever easy. Um, no. No, it's not. Yeah. Well, I want to talk about Tanzania. Um, but before we do that, I want to talk about night shift. Oh, okay. How do you deal with sleep deprivation? Oh, I I'm somebody who feels like I need a lot of sleep to survive well. And so one of the hardest things for me is 24-hour shifts. I feel like my brain does not function very well by the end of them. Um, yeah. Especially if you don't get you know a chunk of time where you get to sleep. Right. And yeah. I would say on average, we at least get to lie down a little bit. Um, but there are definitely nights where or 24-hour shifts where you don't even get a chance to sit down, Yeah, uh, much less sleep. You think um, it's better if you work straight 24 through without ever sleeping or you get that, you know, hour and a half nap and then you wake up and you feel like you could throw up? <laughs> um, I think the naps help. Um, I, I would rather get a little bit of rest. I don't think that there's a perfect solution to this. Mm -mm. Um, Hospitalists, I, that's that's a pretty good one. It's true. I mean, then I think people get breaks in between their 24-hour shifts instead of perhaps having to go to clinic the next day and work right. another eight hours. Um, but I do think it's difficult to switch back and forth continually because hospitalists, if anything, probably take more overnight call shifts than I do because it's the only yeah. thing that they do. And yeah. I think it is hard 
it messes up your circadian rhythm to try to switch back and forth like that. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, obviously trying to eat healthy when you're in the hospital, which is an uphill Good. battle for me Good every luck. time. <laughs> um, trying to stay well hydrated, trying to lie down when you can, and then really trying to be good about car- carving out time to sleep the next day. Because yeah. it's like, oh, this is my one day off this week. I need to go to the dentist and I need to you know, take my kid to get her flu shot and I need to... It's like, no. And then do you <laughs> do you that do thing like sleep? <laughs> and if I sleep today, then that means I won't sleep tonight. You know, well, <laughs> the sleep well, rationing. <laughs> if I, you know, if I think that I'm going to have trouble sleeping, I might try a little melatonin or something that night to kind of yeah. get myself back to sleep. Yeah. Frankly, usually we're so tired that there's not trouble going back to sleep again. <laughs> yeah. um, there is no perfect yeah. solution to this. And I think. Um, uh, this is one of the reasons that um, healthcare workers, uh, so nurses and nursing assistants and surgical techs and physicians get burned out is because nobody is meant to do this forever. It's right. too hard on your body. Right. It is. Yeah. So let's talk about Tanzania. Tell me about the work you do there. Well, I first started as a consultant for the Lake Tanganyika Floating Health Clinic Back in 2011, um, a friend of mine from medical school um, had been doing a surgical residency and then had a nerve injury and was unable to continue. And she started a nonprofit um, instead. And she called and invited me to work with her. And it was a really, I would say that was, oh, that was also a life changing experience um, to be trying to do very complex surgical procedures in a health center with no running water and no electricity um, was very eye-opening, but also very satisfying because we got to treat and help patients who would otherwise not have received the care that they needed. And there was also a big training component where we trained local healthcare workers to do what we were doing and trying to make that the program more sustainable um, so that there would be lasting help for patients who came after we left. Um, and the Lake Tanganyika Floating Health Clinic ultimately offered me a full-time job. So I actually spent a couple of years um, exclusively working uh, in Tanzania and the DRC um, on Lake Tanganyika, which is sandwiched between the two countries. Um, and I got to manage all sorts of programs. So it wasn't just women's health programs during that time, but we were also setting up solar-powered high-frequency radio communication systems in health centers with no electricity and no cell signal so that they could call their local hospital and say, hey, we're having a cholera outbreak. We're running out of chlorine. We need you to send more. (laughs) Instead of having to send someone in a canoe to paddle for four days to go and ask for chlorine. Um, And it was was really amazing to get to do that. Um, How did did it shift your perspective on maternal health care here in the U.S.? It made me so grateful for all of the resources that we have here. Um, uh, it's, it truly is amazing to have electricity and to have running water and to have all the medicines you might potentially need. Um, it, it, when you, it gets put in perspective for you like that, you think, wow, this is pretty amazing. But then it also made me even more sad about maternity care here in the U S because even though we have all of these resources, um, we have one of we have, well, the highest maternal mortality rate of any developed nation. Yeah. Um, and a lot of that is associated with racism and overtreatment. Both of those things, yes. Yeah. Um, and I, there's more and more research going into better delineating those factors and understanding how we can change them. Um, but seeing that we have all these resources and we don't always use them appropriately, it, it's a really sad thing to confront. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what else do you want listeners to know? I think I'd like to tell patients that you have power. If you feel like your doctor isn't listening to you, or you feel like you're getting pushed into a treatment that you don't think is the right treatment, then get a second opinion. Trust your instincts. What about telling your doctor, I don't think you're listening to me? Yes. Speak up. Communicate. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
sometimes people do that though, and that doesn't work. And then they figure, okay, where does this leave me? Um, there are physicians out there who will listen to patients, who will recommend the right treatments. And it's their job to explain it to patients such that everybody feels comfortable, mm-hmm. to give patients autonomy and um, the ability to choose what's going to be right for them. I think one of the biggest things that sets our practice apart, um, we do most of our births at Northwest Hospital, which is the low-risk birth center associated with the UW medicine system, um, is that I would say we don't – I think we really don't try to force patients into doing anything. We tell them, you know, our, our job is to tell you what your options are and to make a recommendation, but you're in the driver's seat. Now, what you decide may mean that you might not be the best candidate to have your birth at Northwest. Um especially if there are some things that we feel strongly about that you don't want to do, but we're not going to try to force you into anything. Um, And I think having that kind of relationship is really important. And so I would say patients, if you're not getting that, seek it out because you can find it. Yeah. You, you, not everybody can find it though. I mean, you're in an urban setting. That's true. So if you're in the middle of, you know, South Dakota where you have to drive 200 miles to your prenatal. Yeah. You, it's not going to happen. But the more that we let women know and understand that they're in the driver's seat, um, mm-hmm. the stronger they're going to be in those conversations. I think that's true. You, I mean, you're absolutely right. There are certainly, there are areas of even here in Washington state, I think 50% of counties here in Washington state don't even have an OBGYN working in them. Right. Um, so yeah. you make a good point. Um you know, not everybody has that opportunity to seek it out. Right. Um, right. Uh, yeah. So, I wish there was more I could <laughs> more I could do to fix that. That's well, I think you're line. doing something to fix it just by, you know, being the doctor who says, you know, speak out. Because I, I was just having a conversation with somebody today actually about the fear that patients have of speaking up in, a, in to authority. Um mm-hmm. and you know, some of it is the fear that if you speak back, then the doctor's not going to be nice to you. Some of it is, oh, you don't want to offend them. Some of it is, you know, simply, I have no idea what to say, you know, all of that. But a big part of it is just permission and, and the empowerment to know that, no, yet they work for you. Their job is to provide information and services, Mm -hmm. you know? And as a physician, it's on me to communicate that completely and effectively, to start yeah. a dialogue where the patient feels comfortable asking questions. Yeah. That is on me. Yeah. Well, we're getting close to the end of this conversation, but I have three rapid fire questions that I want you to answer if you're up okay. to it. Okay. I'm ready. Number one, what role does feminism play in your life? <laughs> um, I think for me, um, the biggest thing I think that I can do is – empower my patients to make the best decisions for themselves um, and whatever small role I can play in that. Um, good, good answer. I want, I, I really want, as you, as we were saying, for them to be in the driver's seat and to know that they're there. Yeah. How do you fill in the blank? Nobody ever told me that. Nobody ever told me that having success in your life or feeling satisfied professionally might not look the way that you expected. Um, What matters most is that you define success for yourself. Um, That you decide what matters most. Hmm. That's pretty interesting. Especially because you're in a profession where, you know, in any measure you're considered a success. Hmm. Well, when I walked away from the academic career path and took a job in sub-Saharan Africa, I think a lot of people thought I was crazy. Um, <laughs> and I I knew inside myself that I was making the right decision. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that was an important life lesson for me, that you don't have to stay on, on the same path as everyone else, yeah. that you actually know what the right path for yourself is and to be confident in that. So then my last question for you before we wrap everything up is where are you in the world of motherhood? 
well, I'm in this unique position where I got to be a mom to uh, a kid who's already a teenager to kind of jump in halfway, so to speak. Um, and now our kid is off at college and that's a different sort of experience. Um, <laughs> I, I think I'm in this lovely portion of motherhood where our daughter is this amazing, interesting, kind and compassionate individual who we both really enjoy hanging out with. Um, and 20 feels, is good. Yeah. 20 is so good. If They're done with the teenage sassiness. <laughs> They're a little less confident that they know everything and you don't. <laughs> I love her sassiness. And honestly, this feels like such a special time to get to be a, spe- a step parent. Oh, I love sassiness in a woman more than almost anything. I'm talking about the very specific breed of sassiness that comes at the ages oh, yeah. of 13 to 17. You know yes. those? Oh, that, I do know that, those. Yes. That kind. <laughs> and have, you know, it does get better from there, as you say. So this feels like a really a special time. Yeah. Well, Kate, where can people learn more about you? Um. Certainly, um, they can find me on the University of Washington's website. Um, and you're on and Twitter too. I am. You can follow me at Dr. Kate McLean on Twitter. And then I'm hoping that I'm going to publish this book one day and people can learn even more then. Awesome. Awesome. Well, this has been a fun conversation. I had a good time. Thank you. Thank you. This was a pleasure. Mama said there'll be days like this. There'll be days. That's it for this week, folks. You can find out more about Dr. McLean on the University of Washington Medical Center website and more about me at genefaulkner.com. Tweet me at Gene Faulkner, and that is J-E-A-N-N-E-F as in Frank, A-U-L-K-N-E-R. Find us on Instagram and Facebook at Common Sense Pregnancy, and don't forget to email me your questions, comments, and concerns. You can find copies of my books over on my website or wherever books are sold, except for Mom's Side of the Story, which you can pick up at genefaulkner.com. Common Sense Pregnancy, Parenting, and Politics is produced by Alex Ward at Sounds Like Pictures Studios. Let's talk again next week, folks. Bye-bye. Hey, guys. We're Sarah and Matthew Bivens, hosts of the Doing It at Home podcast, a show dedicated to empowering stories and resources around home birth. Our mission is to normalize home birth and encourage mamas and families to be educated, supported, and empowered by their birth choices, whatever they are. You can find the podcast in Apple, Google, Stitcher, the Pod Network, and on our website, diahpodcast.com.